Well, it's a blessing to have Pastor Bob Mitchell and his wife Kathy with us this week. He's been a friend to me and a friend to Lighthouse Baptist Church. He was a pastor. How many years were you in Dunbar? Fifteen years. Fifteen years in Pennsylvania, Dunbar, Pennsylvania. Then he went into church planting, planted a church in Lyconia, New Hampshire, which is still operating. Then a church in Brunswick, Maine, where his son is the pastor, of course, Midcoast Baptist Church. Then they tried to start a church in South Portland, but got a negative response. Not a failure. No. Not a failure. You know, men still have free wills. So, but it didn't go. You know, even the Samaritans wouldn't receive Jesus. Do you remember what James and John wanted to do? Call down fire to heaven and destroy them, so we get sinners. You know, that's what it, that's what they want to do. Jesus told him, "You know not what manner of men you are." But you know what? So it's not a failure. And of course, now that they've been involved in uh, through his son's church, Midcoast, planting a church in have planted a church in Carson Valley, New Mexico, or not New Mexico, Nevada, Nevada. So. So he's been around church planning, and he was at the first service of Lighthouse Baptist Church. Now I'm looking around. Who was there when he was there? I think I'm the, we're the only ones. Jacqueline was there. <laughs> we, we borrowed her from Calvary to play piano for us for a while. But, uh, yeah, he was at the first service. I remember that. The first service of Lighthouse Baptist Church. And so we're, we're glad to have him with us tonight. And brother, you come and preach to us. What's the Lord's laid in your heart? <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. It's a blessing to be with you. I was here uh, prior to the uh, first service, helping look for property and trying to give some advice about this business of church planting. I'm not, uh, I'm not by any means an expert, but I think it was Pastor Webb that had called me and asked me to come down at that time as they were out searching for a building and needed some pointers, and I, I don't think I was much help, but I was sure glad to have the fellowship, and I was glad to be here. I'm always glad to come back here. This is... Uh, just like family. Here at Lighthouse Baptist Church, Mrs. Mitchell and I love it. I was sitting there thinking it's probably five or six times I've parked my trailer out here and spent some time. And uh, one time was an extended period of time. <laughs> <clears throat> we, uh, every time we come back, we drive up and down these country roads. They're not country roads anymore, a lot of them. Good night, I'll go out a road and I've been here and this can't be it. It's now a four lane and thousand houses on either side of the road. It's just, I was so, I was so uh, stressed yesterday driving in all this traffic and I just trying to go over to Walmart Wake Forest where they have a, a uh, FedEx office where you can uh, have printing done and so on and have it sent. And it was a legal matter I had to take care of for our church up home. And uh, I couldn't believe the mess that's grown up over that way. And all the traffic and the people, and I drive like an old man. They don't like it. They, they really don't. They don't like it. I mean, an old man goes the speed limit. They don't like you going the speed limit around here. 
And I said, Lord, boy, I'm glad I live in Maine. At, at this stage of my life, it's uh, slow and quiet, and I, I get, you know, a little irritated if I get stopped by a couple of red lights up in Maine. But uh, this is really different. It's amazing how it grows. I said to my wife, where are all these people? Work. Good night. It's just amazing. <laughs> what a blessing. I thank the Lord. I was also sitting there thinking about those of you who were here back when uh, I said we parked here for an extended period of time and uh, you stood by the stuff. Stuck with the Lord in his church, stood by the stuff and came through and look what the Lord's done. It's wonderful. It's wonderful the church that the Lord has given you. Real blessing to be set in one of his churches. I mean, to be set in the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're, they're, really, they're really few and far between. I mean, true New Testament Baptist churches of Christ, they're really few and far between. And I thank God for the, uh, the fellowship that we have with Lighthouse Baptist Church and Calvary Baptist Church over in Carborough. It's a real blessing. And I thank God for the fellowship that you have back and forth as churches and that they're going to be over here on Sunday. That's a blessing. It'll be good to see some of them. I want us to turn in our Bibles tonight to Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. Now as we approach this passage, I want to pray first. Let me pray. Father... It's indeed a blessing to be here. I thank you that I was requested to be here for this meeting. It's good to come back. I'm glad to have an excuse to do it. But Father, we need you to bless in this meeting. We want you to receive glory in your church. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take complete control, help us all to yield to his leadership, and to obey you. We pray that the cause of worldwide evangelism here at home and abroad would be uh, advanced this week as a result of this service, th these services. And to bring, uh, again, bring glory to yourself, receive glory in your church. We thank you for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I said we're in Romans chapter number 10. Uh, do you think that there is uh, any such thing as a stupid question? Um, I've heard speakers over the years, and you've heard them say, uh, uh, ask your questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. I disagree. <laughs> I've heard some really stupid questions over the years. You probably have too. Real stupid questions. Over the years, I've refused to answer some questions. I've had questions uh, uh, asked of me that don't deserve to be answered because I say in my heart, I may not say it out loud, but I say, that's, that's stupid. 
They don't deserve to be answered. For example, when someone asks a question that's framed in such a way as to express a contrary opinion, rather than to seek an honest answer, I say, that's a stupid question. And a lot of people who do that. When someone asks a question with evil intentions, it is stupid. At different times, the Lord Jesus was asked such questions. I think of one in Luke chapter number 10, where a certain lawyer, the scripture says, stood up and tempted him, saying, and it was a question, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that question was asked with the wrong motive of heart. That's why I say it was stupid. It was foolish of the man to do what he did. The intention of the lawyer was evil. Now, such a question as that asked by the lawyer would generally be a good question, but it wasn't on that occasion because he asked the question in malice. The Bible said he stood and tempted him. Wanted to know what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He was tempting the Lord, hoping to ensnare the Lord. And that's really stupid. Imagine that. Attempting to ensnare the Lord Jesus Christ. Attempting to back God in a corner. What are you thinking of? That was indeed a crazy question. It was ridiculous for him to think that he could pull anything over on God. I'm talking about the God man. The Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we could say that any honest question is not stupid. If you have an honest question to ask because you seek to increase your knowledge and understanding of a thing, then you need never to be ashamed to ask that question. And that's generally the principle being expressed when someone who's been speaking then takes questions from the floor and says, ask your questions. There are no stupid questions. Their goal is to make you uh, comfortable by letting you know that you are not viewed as stupid just because you don't know the answer to the question. They desire for you to learn, and that's a good thing. Now, here in Romans chapter number 10, Paul puts forth some rhetorical questions, and his desire is that we consider them, ponder them, and learn the significance of them. These questions are ultimately, my friend, from the Holy Spirit of God, since the words penned were divinely inspired. They were God-breathed. They were given by, by God to Paul to pen. They're the words of the living God. Now, let's read Romans chapter number 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they, be, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. But Esaias is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. We'll end our reading there. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter number 3 and verse number 5, the Bible says, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, and God said, ask what I shall give thee. You remember that story? God appeared to Solomon and asked him, what shall I give thee? And you recall that Solomon's answer was, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad for who is able to judge this so great a people? And the Bible says, The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. All of that makes me wonder what you or I would ask for if we could be granted one desire. One desire. Like that old genie in the bottle thing. If you had one desire, what would you ask for? What would you like to have? What would make you happy and bring you great satisfaction? Perhaps someone says to win the publisher's clearinghouse. I got one of those letters in the mail the other day. I think that one said $7,000 a week for life. $7,000 in the mail every week for life? I suppose it would be deposited directly. It wouldn't come in the mail, but good night. Yeah, yeah, somebody says, I'd like to win the publisher's clearinghouse. Or perhaps someone says, I've always wished that I could have a home on the lake. You know, if I could just have a second place and have a home on the lake. I, I like to fish and do those things, and yeah, I'd really like that. Or someone else might simply say, you know, I'm just a simple person and my, my car's not in very good shape and I'd just like to have a, a new vehicle. Now go back with me to verse number one. 
brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The idea is that Paul longed in his innermost being to see his brethren, the Israelites, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In other words, the thing which would truly delight the Apostle Paul and bring the greatest satisfaction to him would be to see his brethren according to the flesh saved. As a matter of fact, you'll recall that he said on one occasion that he could wish himself accursed for his countrymen, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He could wish himself accursed. His great desire and that which would bring him the most satisfaction would be to see people saved. Now, if you hadn't known where I was going with this message, would your desire have been, if asked that question, you could be granted one thing, would it have been to see certain people saved? Or would it have been something else? Or would you perhaps have even thought, well, I'd sure like to see these folks saved, but you know, maybe I could see them saved anyway and cash in on that. What would your desire have been? You see, we live in such a materialistic society that I'm afraid that even many Christians would probably have given another answer without even thinking of the souls of lost people. We're so materialistic. Paul longed for the salvation of his souls. His desire and prayer to God would that his brethren, the Israelites, be saved. So what do you long for? His great ambition was the salvation of others. What is your great ambition in life? What is it? Now Paul continues in verse number 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. I've known some people over the years who have had a zeal of God and it wasn't according to knowledge, and that's a real mess. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You see, though they were fervent concerning their religion, yet they were faulty in their understanding of spiritual things. And being faulty in their understanding, they failed to grasp the truth of God. They relied on their own self-righteousness rather than submitting to God and receiving his righteousness by faith. They didn't get that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. They didn't get that. For some reason it went over their heads. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He didn't go about seeking to earn righteousness or to earn his way to heaven. He believed God. In other words, the righteousness of God was imputed to him through faith. When someone believes and righteousness is imputed, it means that God credits that person with righteousness. God credits that person with righteousness. The very righteousness of God. The day back in 1968 when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I exercised repentance toward God. I turned from my sin and turned to Jesus Christ, believing on him. God 
attributed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to me. He imputed it to me. And from that time on, God saw me through the blood of Christ as righteous as his dear son, the Lord Jesus. As righteous as him. Because his righteousness was imputed to me. It was put to my account. Because I believed. Now verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of law, the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. The idea that he is the end of the law is that he completed it. The idea is that he fulfilled it. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled all the righteousness of the law. All of the ceremonies of the law pointed to him. You see, they were the shadows of things to come. And he was the substance. He is the substance. Furthermore, not only did he fulfill all the righteousness of the law, but he also bore the penalty of the law for you and me as he bore our sins in his body on the cross, making it possible for you and me to be saved by the grace of God through faith in him. So then, all of those who rejected Christ and chose to keep the law would die and suffer the punishment of the law, which is everlasting destruction in the lake of fire, because no one can keep the law. It's, it's just that simple. James said that if you seek to keep the law and yet offend in one point, then you are guilty of all, hence you are condemned. And we know that no man can keep the law without offending in one point. Therefore, all are guilty and condemned by the law. Verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up again from the dead. Now these two verses have to do with questioning the incarnation and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But believing faith, which results in the righteousness of Christ being imputed to the believer, does not question whether Christ came down from heaven to become a man nor does it question his resurrection from the dead. These are foundational truths of Bible Christianity, and by faith, we who have been born again by the Spirit of God hold them to be true. We believe these truths without question because we believe the Bible. We understand, we know that the Bible is God's Word. It's the truth. Verse 8, but what saith it? In other words, what did Moses say? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So that person who confesses the Lord Jesus, meaning that he declares that he has come into agreement with God 
with what God says in the Bible about Jesus regarding the incarnation and the resurrection and believes God in his heart, meaning it's not just a head knowledge, but it's a real belief, a real heart belief, and puts his trust in God as he relies on the redemptive work of Christ for salvation, shall be saved. That person shall be saved. You're saved by believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, now shalt be saved. Nowhere does the Bible say, pray this little prayer, now shalt be saved. Nowhere. You know, they say, repeat after me, this little prayer. Then pat a guy in the back and say, now you're saved. No. No, no, no. The Bible doesn't say anything about repeating a little prayer. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saved. The idea of being saved is that he will be delivered. The one who believes will be delivered from the bondage of sin and from the judgment to come. Now I'll tell you, I thank God almost every day that I've been delivered from the bondage of sin. I was in the bondage of sin until I was 19 years old. You can do a lot of damage by the time you're 19 years old. So many things I wish I could take back and do over again. But God saved me and God delivered me from the bondage of sin. I was in chains to sin. And I, I couldn't get out of that myself. I was in an awful pit and I couldn't crawl out of that pit myself but God delivered me from that bondage and I'm so thankful for that I don't have to bow at the altar of sin anymore I'm free to serve God and to love him I thank God that God so loved me he so loved you that he gave his only begotten son then you know what God did when we believed Bible says he shed the love of God abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost and now I love God. Bible teaches me that he loved me from everlasting to everlasting and now I can love him to everlasting. I'll love him forever. He delivered me. Praise God. Now verse 10 says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Oh, I like that. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in God for deliverance from sin will never be ashamed. Do you get that? We will never feel the disgrace for having believed the gospel. I'm not going to find out someday that I believed a lie. I'll never be ashamed. I'll never feel disgraced for having believed. You will not die and find out that you were deceived. That's impossible. But I want to tell you, multitudes all over this world down through the ages have believed something else and have been ashamed. That is, upon dying they found out that they had been deceived. But you will never be ashamed for having believed the gospel and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because you have embraced the truth. The truth of the word of God and the truth incarnate. 
He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you've embraced the truth. Verse 12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, all men come to God through faith in Christ. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. That is, it is put to your account, as I said earlier, through faith in him. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Now then, we come to verse number 14. And in verse 14, Paul poses the first of four rhetorical questions. The first question, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, in framing these four questions found in 14 and 15, there's no doubt but what the apostle implies that the answer to the problem would require obedience on our part to the Great Commission. These questions beg answers which help us to define our, your, your mission, I should say, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to obey the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says that Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now the question again, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's a logical question, isn't it? How can a person call on one whom they do not believe in? Now, Paul's doctrine, yea, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus, was that faith in him was necessary to justification, to salvation, justification. We are justified freely by his grace, the Bible says. We are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, so those who have not believed in him cannot be saved. Whether they have heard the gospel preached and counted it as foolishness, rejecting it in unbelief as the Jews, Jewish nation did, or whether they have never heard the gospel, they can't be saved. That's what the Bible says. How can someone call out for help to one whom they do not believe in? The Jewish nation rejected the Lord Jesus they refused to believe in him as they firmly embraced their religious system of ceremonies and traditions of men. They held that salvation was achieved by works, that is, by keeping the law. They held fast to that. But Paul said in Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And again in verses 3 and 4 here in Romans 10 he wrote, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. They wouldn't call on him because they didn't believe in him. He came unto his own, this world which he has created, and his own, the Jewish nation, his own people, received him not. Now, as we look around today, we observe 
that the great religions of the world are filled, and they have been for centuries and centuries, filled with people who will not call on him in repentance and faith because they do not believe in him. Just as Cain, who essentially rejected Jehovah worship way back there in the beginning, they rejected also and choose to worship whomever or whatever they please. Most of these promote doing the best that you can. They promote good works as a way of salvation. Now, it's a good thing for a man to do good works. It's a good thing for a man to change his ways, to quit his meanness, his drunkenness, his thievery, and all the rest. Clean up his life. That's a good thing. And it's good for a man to do good deeds, but that's not the way to salvation. It's just that simple. That is not the way of salvation. Acts 16.31, and they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those who believe in him may call on him. On the other hand, if a person does not believe that salvation is in Christ, then why would he call? So then, how can they, how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? Now that brings us to the second question. Verse number 14, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Why, this is logical also, isn't it? When I was 18 years old, you might have heard me tell this before. I was sitting in a... Uh, physical science class in a university in southwestern Pennsylvania. Everybody was required to take physical science. And I took it the first semester in college. And uh, the professor taught Darwinian evolution. And he didn't teach it as a theory, among other theories, but as fact. That's the way it all came across. Now I'm sitting in this big room with perhaps 200 to 300 other young people. And as, as Rush used to talk about, he's filling our brains with mush. Our, mush. our brains were mush, but here we are in, a, in, in like an amphitorium type thing, all these tiered seats, and he's down here in the front with all those people out there, and he's got a overhead projector. You, some of you remember what they were. And, uh, and this guy's got a Ph.D. He doctor somebody. And he's got all this equipment and he's a professor at college and so when he taught Darwinian evolution, I swallowed all of it, hook, line, and sinker. Why not? The guy's supposed to know what he's talking He's teaching us. He's a brilliant man. So I swallowed it all. Then the next spring, the second semester, just following the second semester, I got saved. And uh, Mrs. Mitchell's mother gave me a King James Bible. And I sat down, I opened up that thing, and I was going to read it. And the first words I read in that Bible were, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I'd swallowed all of that. 
But as soon as I read the Bible, God created the heaven and the earth. I believe that. I embrace that. There's the truth. I knew it was because I'd been saved and I believed it. This is the word of God. But my point is, I'd have never believed it. Had I not been told it, I'd never told that God created. I never learned that. If I hadn't learned it, I'd never believed it. Nobody ever told me that when I was growing up. I don't think anybody did. I know nobody taught me that. But as soon as I saw that it was God who created the heaven and the earth and read the story of that in the first pages of Genesis, I believed it and embraced it. And out went that Darwinian evolution theory. Gone and gone forever as far as I'm concerned. Somebody said when it comes to faith, you can believe without seeing, but not without hearing. All through the ages, God's faithful have believed without seeing, but never without hearing. I have never seen the Lord Jesus Christ with these eyes, but I have heard. And it is the result of that report given to me that I have believed in him and put my faith in him for salvation. God grants repentance and faith to those who hear and will believe. It's just that simple. Verse 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now you may say, preacher, you said earlier that you read those words in Genesis. You read them and believed them. You didn't hear them, but I beg to differ. They are the words of God. And when I read my Bible, God speaks to me. God speaks to me. I heard from God, see. I had somebody tell me when I was a teenager, maybe 16 years old, that he was out in the yard raking leaves, and whoa! He said, I looked up, I stopped to rest, and I looked up in the sky, and it was a cloudy day, and all the sky, all the clouds rolled back, and the face of Jesus appeared. And he spoke to me. That's nonsense. I didn't know enough. I should have asked, what did he look like? Draw me a picture. <laughs> if I'd have said, what did he look like? He'd have probably said like that picture on the wall. And if you saw something, it wasn't Jesus. And he doesn't speak that way. He speaks to us through his word. He gave us the Bible. Now one commentator said, Some way or other the divine revelation must be made known to us before we can receive it and assent to it. It's not born with us. In hearing is included reading, which is tantamount, and by which many are brought to believe. These things are written that ye might believe, John twenty thirty one, Amen. Now, if as that commentator says, some way or other, the divine revelation must be made known to us before we can receive it and assent to it, then there is a need for preachers. There's a need for witnesses a need for those who will proclaim the gospel. And that brings us to the third question. Verse 14, And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see, if faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, then the gospel must be preached in order for people to believe it. 
As I said a moment ago, you can believe without seeing, but you cannot believe without hearing. It's by the foolishness of preaching that God chose to save them that believe. And it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So we have to be spreading the gospel. We have to be giving out the gospel in order for people to hear. There's a need for preachers. And I'm not just talking about ordained preachers, but I'm talking about all of us to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to our friends and our associates and our neighbors, our family. How shall they hear without a preacher? To hear a thing is essential to understanding it. There's no way that I would have ever uh, understood that God created all things if I had never been told that. In light of this, no one will ever understand how to be saved apart from someone conveying the truth to them. People cannot come to Christ without somebody conveying the truth to them. That is, without someone proclaiming the gospel of God's saving grace. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Therefore, it's incumbent on those who name the name of Christ to proclaim his gospel to others. It's our duty as saved people to preach the gospel. This is elementary. How will they know if we don't tell them? And think about this. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we will tell them. The Lord Jesus gave a commission. And the Lord Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we love him, we'll do what he said. We'll fulfill that commission. And then question number four. Verse 15 now. And how shall they preach except they be sent? Now, here is where I see the Great Commission implied, as I spoke of in my opening. Each one of his churches has been sent. He has commissioned every one of his churches to go and carry out the work of preaching the gospel to every creature. Now, a commission. We talk about the Great Commission, and we say that he gave that commission. What is a commission? A commission, by definition, is the authorizing to carry out a particular task, and it involves the granting of the power to carry out that task. The United States may send an ambassador someplace to carry out a task, and he's authorized to do that, and he's empowered by the United States of America to do it. So a commission involves both authorizing and empowering. Now then, observe that our Lord had the authority to commission in Matthew 28:18 he said all power that's not the dynamite word for power this is a different greek word which means authority all power all authority jesus is saying a person with great authority is powerful say and he says all authority or all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So he has the authority to commission. He can authorize his churches to carry out that mission. Furthermore, he grants the power. A commission involves authorizing and empowering. 
He grants the power to his church to fulfill that mission. He said to the church in Acts 1.8, ye shall receive power. And that's a different word. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That word power in Acts 1.8 is translated from a Greek word meaning strength, ability, or might. And ye shall receive the ability, the might, the strength to carry out this commission. A commission involves the authorizing and the empowering. So the Lord has authorized the church to carry out that task and he has granted the church the power to carry out that task. He has commissioned each and every New Testament Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus to carry out that commission. Now then, back to Romans 10, 15. How shall they preach except they be sent? So it is obvious from the Great Commission that his churches have been sent. Therefore, it is the responsibility of each individual member of the church to be involved in the mission by preaching, praying, and giving. You are the church. So it is, it is, um, it is your responsibility to get heartily involved in this thing. Not just involved. Some need to get involved, but not just involved but to get heartily involved with all your heart in it. To get involved with getting the gospel to those around you and getting the gospel to the regions beyond you. You need to be heartily involved. In other words, I said your heart needs to be in this. You should be enthusiastic about it. It's not just something else we do, but it's something else that we ought to get very enthusiastic about and excited about. We get to participate in getting the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. So we have a commission. And we should get involved in it, and we are privileged to get. I, I like this. Pastor Bobby's always saying, you get to come to church. You get to read your Bibles. You get to give. He's always using that word. And that's true. There's been times that uh, I'd balk at something and all of a sudden I can't. You get to, Bobby will say. It's not that you have to do it, Dad. You get to. Yep, amen. We get to be involved in this. We get to pray. We get to give, to send others to the regions beyond us. We get to go right here at home. We get to witness to our friends and families and associates, others we come into contact with. We get to. And every member of Lighthouse Baptist Church ought to participate. Even in this faith promise, there ought not to be one member who doesn't participate in it, not one. And there ought to be hearty participation, as I said. It is something which the church does in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore the duty of every member. When a church chooses to do something, every member needs to be heartily involved. 
I pray almost every day of my life that God in our church up there, and I pray this for your church when I pray for your church, that God would make us one. God would make you one, even as he and his son are one. The Bible talks about that. We need to be one, even as he and his son are one. So, verse 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Period. Exclamation point. Something. 